Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. Before we get into this week's episode, just a quick heads up that the ETH Global Waterloo Hackathon will take place at the Lazaridis Business School in Waterloo, which is a short road trip from Toronto from June 23rd to the 25th. Apart from building awesome projects and participating in the prize pool of 225,000 US dollars, ETH Global Waterloo will also feature a keynote with Vitalik Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum. Don't miss the chance to build your big vision in the birthplace of Ethereum itself, Waterloo. Check out the details and sign up to be a hacker or a mentor at waterloo.ethglobal.com. On the show this week, we've got Federico Panizzi, co-founder and CEO of LokiCode. LokiCode enables simplified and intuitive co-creation of smart contracts with a collaborative web app for smart contract designers and developers. LokiCode is also one of the 12 founding teams forming the Techstars Web3 Accelerator class of 2023. Before co-founding LokiCode in July 2022 with Pedro Wilson, Fabio Manzani, Adam toth Vegel, and Maliki Lynn Nugent, Federico's time in academia included a law degree and a PhD in law and business in his home country of Italy, with stints in Sydney and Hong Kong, before rounding things out with a master's in legal studies at Stanford Law School with a thesis on smart contracts. Federico is passionate about Web3, smart contracts, and cryptocurrency technologies, so he's come to the right place. In this episode, Federico and I riff on the serendipity of how he became an entrepreneur before we dive into Loki Code and their ideal customer profile. We also get into the importance of infrastructure and developer tools in getting us to 1 billion users of Web3, building trust with your co-founders, and the intersection of Bitcoin with Dungeons & Dragons. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. How are things in the grand country of Italy today anyway? You know, we had the loss of Mr. Berlusconi a couple of days ago. So basically the media is talking all, all, only about the, you know, the family and what's going to happen after, you know, his death and things like that. So everybody is like, literally, what's the future of, of Italy? Except for that is going to be summer. So very, you know, in a couple of days. So it's, it's lovely here. Good, uh, good. And, and how do you feel, feel about Signore Berlusconi? Well, you know, I'm sorry for the loss of a person and it's such a controversial profile and figure. Of course, it was part of the history that we, you know, we went through the last 30 years or so because I am yeah. 33 years old and he started being a politician when I was four. So basically, okay. live all the, in the old, old, the whole Berlusconi era. I think, you know, many books will be written on, on him, his family, his mistakes, some good things that he did, I guess. So, uh, well, let's hope the book that's written on Federico is all good things. I hope. So. Yeah. I'm trying to do my best, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. good man. And when, when he started, if you were four years old, that's when you started school. Yeah. So I started school at six. So at in, six, in 19, 1996, because that's, that's the way it works in Italy. And look, one of the things, everybody nowadays talks about 1994, 1994, which was a very controversial year because that back then, basically, there was a, a huge, how to say, case. Basically, politicians used to, to get paid for the services that they provide and all the prosecutors cleaned the space up and the year after he entered, you know, politics. And so everybody talks about 1994, 1994. Well, well that was my... That was my first year when I went to Italy in 1994. I was in Venice, as you might imagine. I was in Rome. 
And then I took a boat over from Brindisi to Corfu in Greece. Okay. And so probably a good week. I had no money when I was there and I was just eating as cheap as I could. I'd go into a cafe or a deli and that there would be massive sheets of pizza <laughs> on these huge square baking tins. And it was like, you just asked for a piece with the size of your hands and they would cut that. They would weigh it. They'd fold it in half, wrap it up in wax paper, and then boom, there you go. You're sorted till like dinner time. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, it was amazing. But you know, the American in Italy raving about the pizza. And back then you were already, you were still living in the United States. Yeah. I was, well, I was living in the U S but I was in Ireland on an exchange program. Okay. So but you I were more American than you are today. Let's yeah, say. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Very yeah. much so. <laughs> so that was. And you know that nowadays in Italy, we talk about slow food versus, you know, fast food. So oh yeah. Invented fast food. And now we are going back to, no, the, the good thing is slow food. No. Oh, so have I. No. And then going back to Italy years later, where I just, the food was not the pasta or the pizza. It was loads of fish and loads of vegetables. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just, that changed my whole diet was going back to Italy and this Mediterranean diet. So it's, yeah, no, thank you, Italy. And thank you, Federico. But Plus, listen, just to close this up, the only yeah. thing I have to say is that I support more Inter rather than Milan. Okay. Right. So I feel sorry because Inter lost against Manchester City. I, I, I didn't know you were an Inter fan. Dude, we were, we were supporting Inter in this household. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because no, my, no, my, my, my two boys are, are Man United fans, and they obviously don't want to see Man City win, win yeah. anything. And I couldn't care less either way about Man United. So I'm like, all right, we'll support Inter. And my older son's football team are black and blue. Their okay. uniform tops are basically Inter. So we're like, we're going for it. And that was, yeah, that was sad. So my, my sympathies to you is a, a, a tried and true blue and black in the blood interfan Federico. Well, but we played well. You um, did. You did. You did. We'll give you that. But listen, in prepping for this chat, I went back and had a look again at your background and the 14 years in academia kind of stood out to me again that before you decided to become a startup founder, that was a long time. How did that happen? What was it? Was it something, do you think, inside you that was pushing you towards this the whole time? Or was it just serendipitous meeting of the guys? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question that brings, me, brings up a lot of memories, actually. As you said, I had a very traditional pathway since I was 19. My background is, is law. And then I was not, after, after the law school, I wanted to dig it more. And so I started this PhD and this, I, I, I had the chance to basically live in four continents during my PhD. So that was already a quite kind of shocking experience. And then after my PhD, I went, as you know, to, to the Stanford Law School. And I remember three things. The first one is that I did a lot of research regarding smart contracts and cryptocurrency technologies, and that was probably the thing that prepared what would be next. The second thing that happened and, and that I remember quite clearly is that I took a class which is called in, in Entrepreneurial Thought Leadership. And it was a very, you know, easy class because it was like one credit. So it's not, not too much work, but it was an outstanding class because there were all these 
you know, entrepreneurs, especially based in Silicon Valley, coming and telling their experience. And I remember that one of the questions that came up the most was, when was the red pill moment for you? So if you recall Matrix, you know, there's the scene, blue pill, red pill, right? And so the kind of quest, you know, stuck in my mind, you know, the red pill moment, red pill moment. Oh, yeah. I've been popping red pills for years. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, because I'm I'm a I'm a quite a big fan of of the Matrix, so that was like. And so, did I decide to become a founder? I think it just happened. So basically, the way it happened is I went online and I found these guys that were building this thing that would become Loki. And you know, when that thing happened, I was like, well, probably this is my Morpheus, blue pill or red pill. And back then, I also remembered the fact that you know I was I. I as you said, 14 years of ac academic experience means that I basically explored anything regarding the law, the economics, and eventually some things about technology. And so at some point I was like, well, this is not the time probably to study things anymore, but to try to make them, you know, to be part of the innovation that was going on and that is still going on. And, and probably the fact that I was in California where everything is so pragmatic, you know, probably even more than other areas in the United States, just guessing. But, yeah. you know, that kind of culture affected my mind. And so when all these things happened together, I said, yes, this is my chance. And I want to, to at least to try to see where this thing would lead me. And, you know, nowadays in hindsight, I, I would say that it was great to make that decision to take the red pill you know, to be unplugged. Yeah. By, what, by... What, what, was there a moment where you kind of saw the cat walking backwards that, you yeah, know, probably. I mean, like, moment... like in the matrix, that was the glitch in the matrix that, that said, Hey, this is, this is it. I know you mentioned connecting with the other four guys, but was there, yeah. set the scene for us on what that looked like? Yeah. So basically that was the year of the pandemic in which as everybody, you know, I was already under the stress of the pandemic. And then after the first lockdown in Italy, and the first lockdown in Italy was pretty heavy. We were hit by the pandemic and things like that. After the, 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 the first lockdown, one, 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 one evening, my mom tells you, I don't want to see you study more. Just go out for riding a bike, right? I was riding my bike and a car hit me. And I had this very severe accident. I broke half of my mouth. I had a very severe. Wow. Back then, I, I didn't know Adam and Malachi and Fabio because the, the fact happened a couple of, well, six months later. So basically, when I got back after this concussion and I was able to, you know, go back to Stanford and do all my studies and finish basically what, what I was doing, I'm like, okay, I went through, you know, all these 14 years of excitement as well as not complete satisfaction one pandemic you know the thing that life can really disappear in one second and then adam and the others was like this is probably you know a sort of wake calling and when that fact happened something started in my mind the decision process took some months just because we met in a very strange way and so it took me you know some months just to say okay is this something that really that is of your interest or is it you know something that can really flow by your side uh, and at the end of the day it's a matter of choice when this happens sometimes you don't pick them other times you do 
I think that all those years of academic experience like prepared me to that moment. And, and when that happened, I just said, yeah, it's my chance. Okay. All right. It literally took a concussion. Yes. Yes. <laughs> literally. Yeah. That's amazing. Now you need, I had to reset my brains kind of, and well. I, yes, I know stranger things have happened. There, there's other stories for other days around that Federico from me, from my perspective, but you know, I, 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 I feel that I definitely feel that. How did you guys get together? Right. Yeah. You, Pedro Wilson, Fabio Manzani, Adam Tothfegel, Malachi Lynn Nugent, a bunch yeah. of wonderfully good names there. Yeah. So this is another great story. So as I said, I was at Stanford at the law school and I was researching smart contracts. Basically the research question that I had, I was yeah, working with was, okay, smart contracts are out there. Everybody says that they are going to change the legal industry in the coming years. What tools does a lawyer have nowadays at at his or her disposal to create a smart contract. And so I engaged myself in a very deep empirical research regarding all the platforms that were out there that tried to simplify the process. And one day I was still in this research mood. I think it was a Thursday evening. And so I said, okay, let's go on Reddit, you know, and just let's waste some, some time. But of course, one of the subreddits that I was in already was this smart contract subreddit. And I immediately see this post of, uh, you know, pseudonym saying, uh, writing, we are building a visual programming tool that should help people to create smart contracts on their own and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, nice. Let's, you know, try to engage with this post. And I replied and I said, can we, I mean, I'm, I'm doing research. I'm researching these things actually. So if you want, let's make a call. And that was the first moment in which I met virtually. Adam, Malachi, and, and Fabio, the thing that there was another Italian working on this thing, I was like, mm, this is even more Good. interesting, right? And then Adam and Malachi told me, well, where are you ba I mean, if you are still at, at Stanford, we can meet because we are based in the Bay Area. And I think that the rest was made really in front of a very good pizza in Palo Alto. Good. Palo Alto Pizzeria, you know, pizza place. And I think that helped to at least break the ice because, you know, going back to, it was a decision. It was more something that occurred randomly. Of course, it took me, it took us some time to say, okay, are you a person I want to engage with it, with this thing for, for some time and the best way is just to sit down in front of some good food in a good environment and to talk and basically to bring everything after that. At some point, we realized that part of the team was, had to be empowered and Malachi had this friend that met online some time before, and that's the way we, we met Pedro. And basically when we were deciding, when we were about to decide, you know, shall we include him in the co-founding team or, or, or not, we, 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 we asked Malachi, do you trust this guy? And he said, yes. So if you trust him, we trust you. And let's, let's get this started. So the cool thing, as you mentioned, is the fact that the team was very distributed and basically there is one Italian right now living in Italy, another Italian living in Manchester, UK. One is half American, half Hungarian. One is half Irish, half Chinese, and, the, and Pedro is Brazilian. So we literally have many 
you know, cultures, yeah. and backgrounds. Points of view, points but of view as well. The end know. of the day, different lives, which makes our theme, I think, very, very unique on this side. Cool. And, yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Interesting that with Pedro coming into the mix and that being based on trust and that you are now building something that can rely on a significant degree of trustlessness, right? So that it, that is a nice little paradox. But how did you come up with the name Loki Code? I think you've told me this before, but remind me. Yeah. So when I met Adam, Fabio, and and Malaki, they were already working on this thing, and they they decided to to call it Loki and to add the word code just to let's say differentiate it from the Marvel style, you know, the the cinema industry. Yes. And Loki comes from. I mean, is the name of this divinity, Nordic divinity that masters the shape-shifting capacity, ability, especially when it comes to language. And back then, basically, the, the starting idea was let's create a visual language that can shape-shift from solidity to another programming language and in the long term, you know, something that stays sort of, sort of above the core programming language. And so they, I mean, they picked this name and two things. I, I did watch some Marvel movies where yeah. he was in, and I did like the transitioning from being a pure, like shadowy character to, to someone that is more protective and helpful and a good character at the end of the day. This I get it. I get it. It's such a great name and it's, you, you got to live up to it now. Right. Yeah, so yeah, of course. It's, it's it, no, but it makes so much sense the way that you, you pulled this together for that. But what I want to dig in now to Loki code a bit in terms of what it is and your ideal customer, right? Yeah. That will drive Loki code into the market and drive them Loki code MVP into the market. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So as of now, Loki code is, it wants to be a collaborative web application that helps teams to collaborate when building smart contracts. And so create smart contracts together, better, faster, and in a safe environment. And the reason is because, I mean, we envision the fact that smart contract development, especially in the coming years, will not be something made by solo developers. I mean, it might be, but when it comes to bigger things, teams are necessary. And we also envision that the experience that we are having in our team is going to be replicated somehow. I'm, you know, I have a legal background, Fabio has a UI UX background. There are three software engineers, one more on sales. So there are different, you know, capacities and abilities. And I, and we think, we think that this is going to be the future when it comes to create, you know, complex software things like, like smart contracts in terms of, let's say audience and, and, uh, ideal persona, it's head of products and product managers as the people that will lead the smart contract designing process. And where we can really step in, providing them a, a platform that relies on visual communication tools so that the idea conception can be built in a way that can be easily conveyed to developers and developers can execute them. And, you know, these communication flows can start so that the final output aligns with the initial idea and hopefully is bugless and for sure is audited and safe and secure when is when when is deployed in on the blockchain so to wrap it up i would say yeah smart contract 
development teams that are working as smart contract service providers in terms of consultancy or things like that, yeah. or blockchain agencies, digital agencies. For sure, something that we have been realizing is the fact that nowadays it's pretty much like you know, the web as it used to be in the early 90s. So there is something that, that is very new out there. And we want to address these people, giving them the tools that are necessary to build something that is new, it's complex, yep. that they can experiment, pro use to create prototypes. Basically, we really want to open up smart contract development from idea conception to deployment to the mass of people that is out there that I'm sure, I'm sure that that has heard this crypto thing, yep. the great thing going on, but still that doesn't have the tools necessary to access the space. Yeah. Yeah. And you get, you give me a great analogy in some of the chats that we've been on before Federico on what it was like in the nineties, back in 1994, 1993, 92, where if you wanted to have a website, you had it, you had to be able to code in HTML. And now we've got website in a box, we've got WordPress, we've got Wix, we've got Squarespace, these things that are just so easy to use. Is that the direction you're going with Loki code in terms yeah, of smart yeah. contracts? Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, we are making things that are very complex, much more accessible, pretty much as you mentioned, WordPress and Shopify, Webflow, you know, all these low code, no code tools did for the web. 1, 2.0, whatever. Yep. At the end of the day, Web3 is the iteration of the web. And it might be a new thing out there. Smart contract, decentralized application might be a new concept. But in my opinion, the problems at the core of the development process, you know, follow a sort of pattern. And the pattern comes, comes from a need that is out there. And we want to target these needs, simplify the access, simplify the experience. And I'm sure that when we get at that point, to that point, the, the same creativity and explosion of whatever, as it, as it happened, you know, decades, would say 20 years ago or so, it will happen again. It, it makes me think of a, a chat that I had with, with Sam Williams, who is one of the co-founders of Arweave. And he and I were chatting about Web3 in particular. And I said, listen, I'm thinking about after a chat with somebody else, expanding my view around this a bit to, you know, to VR and, and things like that. He's like, Pete, stop. He's like, just, just stop. He said, web three is the protocolization of web services or turning web services into protocols, right? You think back to the nineties again with HTTP and FTP and IP and all of that being you know, the protocols that were free and open source for people to use and build on. Yeah. He said, imagine protocols replacing web services today, e-commerce, whether that be retail or, you know, business level with Shopify, like you mentioned, and that where all of these are just open source protocols driven by smart contracts that will drive the web. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, okay. that's where we are headed. Good. Thinking of the future as well, the, the key part of our Web3 thesis that backed how we made our decisions on the teams that we invested in with this Techstars Web3 program, Federico, it was driven by the lack of infrastructure that we saw on Web3 after going through the program last year with a class of 22. And now the big number that people have been throwing out there is getting to 1 billion users of Web3. 
And if you think about what that really means, we've got 15 to 20 to 40 million monthly active users of crypto right now of NFTs in total, right? And that's a very small number to get to 1 billion. And there's, in terms of daily active users of something like Google, that's 3.5 billion, right? So we got it, we're thinking in, in those territories in order to get to, to 1 billion users. And the trajectories are on that track in terms of comparing to how the internet grew in the 90s and looking at how Web3 has grown over the last seven, eight, 10 years. So to get to 1 billion users of Web3, I think it was A16Z, or perhaps it might've been Brian Armstrong from Coinbase who said, well, we're really going to need another three to 4 million developers. And there's somewhere between, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand, maybe max a million developers right now in Web3, but it's more in the low hundreds of thousands, depending upon the, the day. You know, there's so much to build right now. There's highways, there's roads, there's on-ramps, there's off-ramps, there's roundabouts, you name it. Any analogy we can use here to build the infrastructure. How do you think we get there? What is going to be the path to get to 1 billion users of Web3? I know this is a big question, but... Yeah, yeah, no, it's a big question and I do like the analogy and, you know, to elaborate on that a little bit further, you know, to build highways, to build off ramps, on ramps, whatever, you also need the tools like excavators, tubes, you need, what's the name? Cranes, you know, cranes, yep. cranes. you need all these, you need jackhammers. Yeah. Yeah. You need all these tools that are necessary in order to, you know, get to the final thing, which is, you know, at the end of the day, what we see what we use and when it's out there, we say, well, you know, we, everybody uses the highways nowadays. If, if you look backward and you try to put yourself in the shoes of those people that came out, you know, came with these ideas and they had to make something that was out of any possibility, probably, I don't know, it took, it took some time and it took a lot of effort in order to build everything that was necessary to build something that at the end of the day was the final output. And I think that we are kind of there in, in the web three, or let's say in the web evolution today. The other thing that, I mean, I did like the, the fact that you mentioned Brian Armstrong saying that, and I want also to add the fact that in my opinion, it is not just about developers developing. It is also designers, meaning, okay, I want to use this technology in this specific sector for this specific purpose. And I need a way to work with you guys so that our idea can be implemented. And of course, the more we can simplify the ways these two areas, these two word, words communicate, we are literally creating a bridge, right? Bridge yeah. from where, let's say the raw materials or the workforce is. And that can meet the other people on the other side of the river. And when people and minds and energies, and when there is a meeting of something, then there is al always something else coming out of that. And I yeah. think that's the moment where we are right now. So we, we definitely need tooling pretty much as it was, let's say for Bitcoin, you know, since you mentioned Brian Armstrong back then, if you asked me in 20, 2010, how to buy Bitcoin or to trade Bitcoin safely, I, I was not able to give you a straightforward answer. And wallets, everything that we know about crypto developed. And nowadays, crypto, as we say, is here to stay. Yeah, it is. It is. You can't put it back in the box. Right? Uh, 
no. you know, or, I mean, or it's, mostly it, because you see that Island is really moving forward and very well. So maybe not Boston, but Dublin would be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Boston has those original roots back to the revolution. So, you know, there's some good blockchain mines in Boston, but on, on Brian Armstrong, in, interestingly enough, this was on a podcast that I heard him speaking on. He said that the way that he stays close to where things are going with Coinbase strategically is that he still has and joins the product meetings, right? And to understand what the customer wants, because those are the folks that are out there that are speaking to customers, say, what is the next big feature? What is the next big product that we need to build? And that he was originally a developer. That was his thing. And now he's clearly, obviously stepped away from that. He needs to, and he, you know, was handed the keys over a long time ago, but still gets involved in the product discussion so we can add his little piece and his little two cents to this. And with that analogy that you made about building the bridge and that were compared to some of those bridges out there that we know well that are token bridges, right? And that where with token bridges, someone gets tied to one side of the bridge and left there and you create a duplicate image of yourself and that you send it across the bridge, the bridge that you guys are building, this is actually sending people over the bridge, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's good. It's good stuff. When, you know, back to your 14 years and, and jumping right into this, Federico, that building a startup can be, sorry, it's not can be, building a startup is incredibly challenging, right? But it can also be very rewarding. Yeah. Two-part question. What do you think has been the most challenging and what do you think has been the most rewarding so far? It's early days. Yeah. I mean, regarding the most challenging, I would say that in our, in my experience, in our experience, so think about five guys, different stories, different backgrounds. They don't know each other and they find a common floor, you know, with this idea of, okay, let's try to build something that makes smart contracts easy. Okay. Just to make it simple. The most challenging part for, I think for each of us was get to build that level of trust, right? And that took a journey of knowing each other and solving issues, literally building the team, which is not just meeting and say, Hey, yes, I'm interested in this thing. And you are interested in the same thing. It was building the level of trust that we can say, okay, whatever it happens, we have the freedom to sit down and talk to each other freely and solve the problem and move on. And that takes some time because in our case, everybody started with his own idea, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, as you know, at the very beginning of a startup journey, team is what really matters. The rest somehow comes after, at least uh, this is what I'm, what I'm experiencing. I uh, hear you. I hear you. There's a couple of different ways you can poke at this and saying that sometimes what you see with a startup is that you've got a commercial founder or a technical founder that then looks for its counterpart right? Or looks for their counterpart, whether that is a commercial founder looking for a technical co-founder or a technical founder looking for a commercial co-founder. Yeah. That's, there that's... was, there was the three of them mm. and then there was you and then there was Pedro. And yeah. that is a unique way to bring a team together. Right. Yeah. And, and let me phrase it this way. The most challenging thing was moving the startup from being transactional to being relational, which is not taking the transactional piece out of the equation, 
but empowering that thing. And when it comes down to that level, you can really go through all the other minor challenges that can, can occur throughout the journey. Yeah. Yeah. So transactional versus relational meaning kind of that, okay, you do for me and I do for you. And we're kind of testing each other out to, okay, we now have this trust and we have this common ground and we can move forward on these relationships. Which doesn't mean that we do not stay accountable on each other tasks and things like that. It's all there, but it's also, you know, as you, as you said, I trust you and, and, you know, this also speeds up the, the process and the roadmap. So yeah, yeah. at the end of the day. But it, it's, it's a work that you have to do to get there. It doesn't, I mean, it might be, but in our, in our case, I can't say that it's like dating, right? You fall in love, but then you need to work the relationship. Oh, you do. Oh, oh yeah. You want to get married. You so. do. I know. Yeah, I know. Clearly get that, Federico, on the, on the challenging side. But what has been the most rewarding? Yeah, so the, the most sincere answer that I have is getting into Dexter's Web3. That's rewarding. No, Thank but you. that's not just for saying, but, you know, consider at least in my, in my experience going after all the things that we discussed earlier about, you know, the personal life and things like that. The fact that you can, you know, finally find someone that trusts what you're doing, that shares a vision and that you can start a relationship and a dialogue and be corrected and be mentored. You know, this is probably the most rewarding experience. It's also, you know, something that happens after a lot of sweat, a lot of, you know, nights and days in which you have to, you know, try to shape things in a way that can be easily communicating and, and things like that. And, you know, going back to the dating analogy, it's like when you say, well, you know, I'd like to have a girlfriend, then you need to find a girlfriend. And so you go out and uh, yeah. you find the, that, that, that. You know, my case, that girlfriend and boyfriend, whatever, and 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 it's the start of the new journey. So that was for sure the most rewarding, and the 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 the, the program has been great so far. So I can tell you that it was not just the most rewarding thing when Texas Web Web three selected us, but it it is for sure the most rewarding thing today because of all the things that have been happening. You know, so far. Awesome! I love it, Federico. It's very kind of you to share that. So I appreciate that. Thinking about your past as well, one more time, keep digging back into it. There was one thing that I found that really jumped out at me, which Mm -hmm. was, and it was in Italian, and it was the title of something that you wrote, perhaps a research paper. And the three words that stuck out that were in English in the title of that research paper that were not in Italian were Dungeons and Dragons and Bitcoin. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What what is that? (laughs) This is a funny story. I mean... So during my PhD, I spent many summers in Chicago researching stuff. And one summer I was with this friend of mine that was super into games, like video games, right? And I remember him talking about World of Warcraft and farming and all this thing. This was way before the NFT summer. And so I was super amazed and I got into the virtual world and try to, you know, explore this rabbit hole. And then basically the content of that post is I see a sort of line of evolution between the virtual worlds as they used to be in the very early days. Dungeons and Dragons is basically the very core beginning of any kind of role play 
offline or online, right? And so I, I was, I just draw this line between what the virt virtual worlds used to be before the internet, just in our minds, and the virtualization of the world that with crypto and, and NFTs, of course, later occurred. And I'll tell you something, this was a medium post initially, and then it happened that uh, a consultancy company, a little consultancy company based in, in Milan said, can you translate this thing in English? Because we want to post it on our journal, our yeah. monthly journal. And I said, yes, no problem. And then a professor, an Italian professor came to me and said, look, this is interesting. And that was the, the period of the NFT booming and, you know, things like that. This is interesting. Do you want to partake in a, one of the most important industrial law? conferences in Italy, because this is a very interesting piece. And so I did. And that Medium post was published on the journal of this conference, which was quite, I discovered to be quite prestigious because my background is more banking and finance, so very yeah. powerful, I think. And, and, and that was another, you know, as I said, sign or, or, or preparation of the fact that I was on the right track. It was a huge discovery. Did you read Ready Player One? Play what? What's Did the... you read the book, Ready Player One? No, no, never. Okay, okay. Sure. This, this, was, this is a bit of serendipity because whether it was through that book or whether it was through something related to an article related to the book, it pointed out, and some of my own thoughts developed around this as well, is that before Dungeons and Dragons, there was The Hobbit, right? Mm -hmm. And there was Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And the whole world that he built, the language that he built, the lore, the mythology, all of this around The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and that all of the fans of that wanted to bring it to life. And that's where Dungeons and Dragons came from, right? Was this whole Tolkien ecosystem and universe and world and people wanting to do this. And remember with Dungeons and Dragons, you had inventory, you had mm -hmm. a bag of gear, you had magic potions, you had money, you had swords, you had all this stuff. And then those that were big fans of this were, drove the first video game, Evolution. Right. And started to get some of these things into place in the video game world, starting with just text based bulletin board games in the late 80s. And I used to play some of those back in the day in the dial up internet with modem with a thing that was going off. And I, I forget one of the games, but it was the first almost truly animated, might have been called Dragon's Lair or Dragon Slayer or something like that. And then you get into the 2000s and the technology improves. World of Warcraft comes along. Vitalik has been quoted as saying, Vitalik Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum said, listen, my World of Warcraft account got nerfed and I was so upset, I cried myself to sleep and I was sick of all these centralized controllers of video games and of this whole ecosystem. And that's why he developed Ethereum. In the meantime, you have the whole Bitcoin, you know, creation that happened and it wasn't just satoshi it was it, to me it, you know clearly going to be a bunch of individuals been working on this since the 90s so with the cypherpunks going back so there's all this stuff going on that all happened that came together for this and it's really cool that you kind of thought about this at the same time my thoughts were developing around this in the last couple of years yeah look the thing that really struck my mind was if you think about it the fact that you can have digital property you know yes it's like mind blowing. And one of the reasons why I, and my background is, is, is a legal one. So I always, yep. from that thing. So one of the reasons why I was so interested in it was the fact that there were huge cases, like legal cases regarding 
who owns what when it comes to video game because there's the license issue but at the at the on the other side you have the player that plays so many hours a day you know to get that thing one of the words that is used in the video game is the skin you have your own skin so it's my property now I mean, I don't want to go too cerebral, but the idea that Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything that can be built on top of Ethereum is part of your property, stays yeah. in your wallet, and you can really do whatever you want is really literally mind-blowing. And of course, the next thing after property is contracts. So if you can really embed you know, contracts into software, you really have virtual games that, that nowadays you know, might look like very simple, but who knows? what they will be in 10 years i mean i know i know and and to me it, it's you know video game industry is driving so much of this towards web 3. i mean gamification of 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 our mindset i mean the the kind of things that come from the video game industry and mm -hmm. space are really like reshaping the way we live so we, totally it's putting yourself into that virtual world yeah and that in order to do that properly and to have fairness and justice in the digital world, in the virtual world, you need contracts, right? Yeah. You need property rights. You need all these things that you guys are working on to make it easier for people to do with smart contracts. On that note, Federico, we have covered a wide range of topics today. <laughs> and we got into your past quite a bit. Is there anything left where, that people may not know about you? To pose that final question that we asked everybody, what is one thing that people would not expect to know about Federico? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I used to dance. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. I, I, when I was, I was a kid, I used to do a lot of ballroom dan dances, like waltzer, you know. Cha -cha -cha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so even, even though I, you know, law, technology, econ I mean, financial stuff, economics, these are very rational focus based things right but i think that there is a very big part of me that is more uh, sentimental focus on you know the mood the aesthetics that 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 these things can drive so big fan of of you know anything that is like cinema things like that who knows maybe in the future i'm gonna be a movie producer <laughs> you might be you might be but the footwork footwork is everything when it comes to dancing isn't it yes yes it's the work uh, and the mood and the mood and the aesthetic feeling the uh, flow the you know the elegance so okay okay uh, but you do have to master the footwork and and the pose the footwork the pose and the timing you know it's a bunch of things you really need to be synchronized mind and body yeah and you really need to well yeah this is actually something that i would say relates with the startup work you really need to have the vision where we are with the footwork where you are where where you're heading because you need to see yourself three foot ahead. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges when it comes to startupping is having the vision and having the vision clear enough so that you can make, you know, the, the foot ahead, hopefully not perfectly right, but as, as right as possible, as much right as possible. So that's a great, that's a great way to sum it all up, Federico. Listen, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, I think LinkedIn. I am quite responsive there. Okay. Nico Panisi, P-A-N-I-S-I. -I. Just drop me a, a connection message and I'll respond. I connect. Fantastic. Well, Federico, thank you so much for coming out to the show. I've really enjoyed this chat. Yeah, like. And I know I'll see you a bit later. Yes.
I'll see you. Thanks again and have a great one. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Federico Panizzi for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. And you can learn more about Federico and Loki Code in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early-stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, and I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya!